The Incomparable Podcast, Episode 29, March 2011. Welcome back to the Incomparable Podcast. I am your host, Dan Morin, sitting in for Jason Snell, who for once has not read the book that is the subject of our talk tonight. Now who's illiterate? Huh? Uh, anyways, I'm joined by a, uh, a gallery of rogues, as you might say. Um, we have Scott McNulty. Hi, Scott. Hello. And uh, John Syracuse. Hi, John. Hello, everybody. And the three of us are here convening this sort of ad hoc uh, meeting of the book club to talk about Patrick Rothfuss's debut fantasy novel from 2007. So, you know, we're, we're a little bit behind the time, I guess. It's hot off the presses. <laughs> um, the Name of the Wind. Uh, and part of the reason we're talking about it now is that the book's sequel, The Wise Man's Fear, just came out, oh, what, two weeks ago or so? All right. So we're, we're here to sort of... Uh, whet your appetite. Uh, if you have not read this series, um, well, <laughs> be aware that we, there are going to have some spoilers from the first book. We're going to try to avoid spoilers from the second book. We haven't all finished reading it. I think Scott's finished it. I'm about halfway through. John, how about you? I'm like 10%. I'm, I'm a slow reader. It's a it's a long book, too. It is a hefty book. It's a lot of, it's a lot of Kindle dots. I don't know what that means, but... <laughs> Well, the first one was no was no short one either. So um, let's let's just dive right in. I'm just gonna uh, have, fire off the spoiler horn right now for anybody who has not read the name of the wind. This podcast is going to be one probably fairly large spoiler for that. We will at the end reveal the name of the wind. It's it's Bob. Bob. Bob is the name of the wind. How how hard was that? That could have been a lot shorter book. <laughs> a very short book. Two pages. <laughs> um. So, to, let's give a little, little overview of the plot of The Name of the Wind. Now, this is a fantasy book. Um, in some ways, I think what, what interested me about it is that while it has some of the tropes of your traditional fantasy book, it also feels not entirely like, you know, your standard fantasy book. Um, I think he, he plays with some of the conventions, which is nice. It's um, the story of a, a man named Quoth. Good job on that. Good job. Um, yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, he does a good job of pointing out in somewhere in the book, I think, what what the pronunciation is at some point. The yeah. character corrects somebody. Um, a man named Quoth, who is kind of a legendary hero. Um, and the other thing I really love about the book is that the layering of the stories, in that we get the bulk of it through Quoth's eyes. Like, he's relating this story, and it's being written down. Um, by another man who's a scribe. And so, you know, we have it. It's all sort of tinged with his memory of how he came to be this legendary hero. Um, but, and that, ad- that adds this interesting, this interesting dynamic because we also have this framing story in which he's doing the relating and it's also, there's some other stuff going on with, uh, you know, the way that the, the world is, this, this fantasy world is going, which is to say not very, not very well. Um, I, I don't know if there's a good way of summing up sort of what the what the plot of Name of the Wind is, though. I don't know. You guys, either of you, have sort of like a, a like a pithy one word sentence summary or something? Because I, I would have trouble wrapping it up in that. Well, the plot is if you take out the whole device of the 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 kind of it's not really a bookend, but you know the kind of flashback story. It's fairly straightforward, right? It's the the Kavath. Uh, is that how you say Kavath? Uh, he is born kind of a gypsy, right? And so his he's his parents are traveling entertainers, and he's in this troupe. And through he has some adventures, and he loves his parents, and he meets some guy who 
can name things and does uh, went to the university, which is this the one school in this world, I guess, where people find out arcane things. And by the way, this is good. there are going to be a lot of spoilers in this one sentence. Uh, <laughs> And then his parents get killed by these, uh, well, the whole troop gets killed by these, uh, mysterious, mysterious. Yeah. kind of fairy tale beings, uh, that come and kill everyone except for Kavoth or whatever the heck his name is, uh, cause he's out in the forest or something. And so he comes back, he finds everyone dead. He's very sad. He goes to a city. He lives as a, a street urchin for a couple of years. And then he meets somebody who inspires him to go to the university himself. He's accepted into the university. He's a, shockingly, he's a stellar student at the university. He has great aptitude. He meets uh, a rich guy who is doesn't like him because he's poor and he knows a lot more than the rich guy. And uh, there you go. It's a, it's a bit more than one sentence, but but it is. It, a it was a run on sentence. It was. It was. Yeah, that was a bit of a comma splice. Yes. But, but I think you could, did a good job of telling, you know, sort of hitting the high notes there. But, you know, it, it's not necessarily because this is the first book in a series. You know, obviously we don't get like everything. You know, this is only the first a part of the arc. Like we sort of we're sort of in the name of the wind. You're getting his rise, but not necessarily, um, you know, the middle or the end of the story. Although you get the impression from the framing story where where we having Kvothe relate this to his his scribe um, uh, that he's sort of come down in the world since then. Since in the framing story, he's an innkeeper, um, and there is some suggestion later on, at least towards the end of the book, that he, these powers, these amazing powers, which made him this legendary hero, are no longer available to him. Um. But so, like I said, one of the things I really liked about it is the sort of the layering of the stories there. I don't know if there was something in particular that caught you guys in terms of uh, why you find this. Assuming you 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 liked the book, uh, what about it caught your attention and sort of set it apart for you? Well, I, I have a confession to make. I was uh, very enthusiastic about doing this show, this book on the on the podcast, uh, mostly because I just wanted to be on a book podcast, and, and you guys read books way too fast for me. And I already read this one, so I thought it was a great opportunity. Um, so you would think I'd be uh, all set to say lots of wonderful things about this book, but in fact, I come here not to praise this book, but to bury it. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. But, and yet you were reading the second one, though, so that's an interesting... If you didn't like the first one... Yeah, so I heard uh, about this book, I don't remember where I heard it, through the internet, uh, and I hadn't read a fantasy book in a long time, and people were making a lot of noise about the, you know this new guy, it's his first book, it's a great fantasy book, you should read it. So I said, fine, I'll give it a try. Um, and I started reading it, and... The reason I'm reading the sequel, and the reason I'm part of the reason I'm doing this anyway, is that there were a lot of things to recommend this book. Um, I guess I'll start before I start shredding it to bits with my favorite parts of the book. My favorite parts, uh, you guys touched on a lot of them already. Uh, one, I really like the the whole uh, magic system in the world, the, the idea of sympathy, and that's kind of like the, the lame magic, where you can't really do anything too exciting, uh, and everything is kind of balanced by semi-physical forces. And then there's like the real magic where you have where you're naming things, um, and that's much more mysterious and not as commonplace. That whole mechanism and that takes up a lot of the beginning part of the book. That that stuff I, I like. I thought it was interesting and original, and I, I generally like books that do something interesting with the magic system. Um, and that pulled me into it. But as I was reading the book, you know, so 
Scott gave a good summary of like gypsy dude big bad thing happens at the beginning of the book everybody killed then his you know down period where he's living in the streets and stuff like that and then sort of his rise up through the university but as i was going through the book in in ebook form and i was looking at the little progress meter at a certain point i realized wait a second there's no way they can wrap this up <laughs> like like this is just going to end i'm rapidly approaching the end of the book and almost nothing has happened um yeah, and, and again, it is the first book in a series, so that's not that big of a deal, but it kind of bothered me a little bit, and I was like, well, you know, I'll just keep going and I'll plow the rest of my way through it. But by the time I was done, I had a lot, a lot of complaints about this book, and I couldn't believe people were raving about it as, a, as this great fantasy novel. I mean, it may be that I just hadn't read fantasy novels in a long time, and this is actually uh, an excellent example of the genre, and I just remember the other ones fondly because I was a younger person when I read them. I don't know, but before I go through my list of things, can you guys think of anything about the book that you didn't like? What do you think I'm going to complain about besides the, the plot stuff that I just did? Well, I, for what hey, this is another, so what's his name? Kvothe is, um, A, I can't say his name, so I don't like that. B, uh, he's another one of these main characters that is incredibly good at everything, right? Which I find a little annoying. Uh, everything he tries, he's like the best loot player in the world, and he writes all these songs that everyone knows, and he's the best in his class at everything, and it gets to be a bit much, because he has all these these challenges that are set before him, right? But you know he's going to successfully overcome them, because he's the smartest person in the book, he's the most talented person in, in the book, he has the best voice in the book. Uh, maybe a little flaw here and there wouldn't hurt. Well, I mean, I think I think they well, at least I'll, I'll counter that by saying that I think that I mean that's definitely true. You know, he's definitely pictured as this character who's incredibly clever. Um, I like the times when his cleverness doesn't do it for him, and he's like he's shown at like getting ahead of himself. I think there's a couple good examples. One of which in his sort of re- his repartee with this, he really wants to study under the guy who who is the master of the more esoteric naming magic, who is a bit of a uh, well, he's crazy we'll put it that way um, and I think you know that guy in and I guess this comes more in the second book but you know that is the sort of the one thing that seems to elude him um, and I think you know the, it, it illuminates a part of his character where he is not a very he's he's smart but he lacks a bit of common sense he's always doing things you know rushing in he's a bit impetuous um, and sometimes that gets him in trouble, and I think that's the, that's sort of what I liked about him is that he is as smart as he is. He is very often, it seems, too smart for his own good. But perhaps that's just me. All right, so that was on my list. I could expound on it more, but I think you guys covered the basic points. Anything else? Uh, well, let's see what else. I didn't like the. I don't know why I'm listing all the things I did. I, I should say that I did, in fact, enjoy the book, and I thought it was good before I listened. Like John's gotten you on his side. He sucked you into this. He did. He used it's not, it's not too hard to turn uh, Scott to the negative side. It's true. I am generally more predisposed to not liking something. Um, so the other thing I did not like is what's the the, the character uh, Dina Dana, whatever her Dana, name is, the yeah. the little love interest. I found that whole dynamic annoying. I don't know if you guys did or not, but yeah. So, so I guess I'm not entirely crazy because the, my two, my, my three pillars of things that I didn't like about this book were one, the plot, which I just went over, where that it didn't seem like it was going anywhere, especially since it had those like side adventures with the dragon, and then he's off in that town, but then there's the university section. It was like lots of interconnected short stories but there was no like overall arc and you couldn't even see like the beginning of an arc like where it's going to go because this, the framing story is so far down the road 
from his various adventures yeah. that you just, I can't connect the dots yet. Maybe it's going to be a 20 book series, so in which case, you know. Well, uh, it's going to we'll, be a three book series. We'll all be dead by the time he finishes at this rate. Um, <laughs> but then, so the character is another thing, you know, the the, the Mary Sue disease, that he with that right on the head. He's good at everything. Uh, every woman he meets loves him. Uh, you know, his flaw, you know, his flaw of like, you know, his flaw is that he's too smart for his own good. That's, that's, a, <laughs> exactly. that's, not, a, that's not a great It's like when flaw. you're at an interview and they say, well, what's your greatest weakness? I work too hard. Sometimes I'm just too clever for my own good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the the worst part, the part that gave me the, the, the worst taste throughout the entire book, it just still bothers me, is the treatment of women in this book should be like, they should have a, a course in, you know, creative writing courses of how not to write women. Because women only exist in this book as sexual objects. And every time they come on the scene, they're described in terms of their beauty and attractiveness to the character. And that's the only value they add. I mean, even this, this Denna person or whatever, she's. She's a horrible person. There's nothing to recommend her. There's no reason he should be attracted to her in any way. But every character, like Fela or Fila or whatever, like any any female character, Devi, the, the moneylender, any time they come on the screen, so to speak, it, they're immediately described in terms of how uh, attractive they are and, and very sexual innuendo. And if it was done either in an omniscient narrator or first person from the perspective of the young one, maybe you could excuse that because that's like maybe 18-year-olds, that's how they see women, you know, when you're in that age or however old he's supposed to be. But it's being told by the older, wiser one. He's the one relaying the tale. I can't come up with any sort of rational explanation for how horrible women are treated in this book. And it just, it grates on me. And it's like, we can have any women characters? No, they only exist as pleasure centers and desire, you know, tiny pinpoints of desire for the male characters in the book. And that, more than anything else, just, like, it bothers me immensely. I don't know why it bothers me. Maybe it was the same in all the other fantasy books I read and I didn't notice, but I noticed it a lot in this one. Well, that, I mean, and that's that's a... I think that's very often a criticism of the fantasy and science fiction genre in general. And, you know, there's obviously... <laughs> you could probably spend an almost entire podcast discussing why that's the case, but we won't delve too much but into sci-fi, it. sci-fi, I find it less, because sci-fi... Uh, Either it depends. I think it really depends on the you know what sci-fi you're reading. But I think that in the in the very like sort of I don't say traditional, but like you know that's one of the tropes I feel like of, of science fiction and fantasy. Well, but I then mean, again, there, it's probably primarily a male-dominated field. Yeah. I was going to say like the most damning thing I can say about the women in this book is that Tolkien has better women characters, and wow. he's got like three in a thousand-page <laughs> book. And at least his characters like. At least they relate to the world and to the other people in the book as something other than sexual objects. They have their own motivations, their own feelings, their own, you know, uh, agendas, and every single one of them isn't immediately described in terms of how they are attracted to or, attract, or, or you know, drawn towards the, the male characters or how the male characters are drawn to them. Now, I don't want to go on complaining about this book saying how horrible it is, because obviously I'm, I'm reading the sequel, so there must be something to recommend it. And I yeah. think... The the set the interest of the setting and the fact that the first book didn't go anywhere makes me makes me want to know where it's going. Like because they teased you know <laughs> those those evil guys who killed this whole troop that we don't know anything about them. We spent the whole first book trying to study them, but wasn't allowed in the library for the whole book for inane you know bad sitcom reasons. Uh, it, it, that, that's another thing with, where there, there are coincidences in these books that would be clear uh, situations in the books that would be cleared up with just a simple explanation but you know the master is like nope don't want to hear about it don't want to hear about any of this yep he gave you a candle nope I don't want to hear about that at all tough luck the rest of the book you're not allowed to learn anything about them so I guess we'll just have to wait till book two to learn anything you know uh, <laughs> 
Yeah. So things like that are teased and uh, and that keeps me wondering like all right so maybe he's got a really good idea about these guys maybe the overall story is really clever because i've learned so little about it that i'm willing to go on so i'll read the second book and if still nothing happens at the end of the second book i'll probably start to get frustrated <laughs> you will start to get frustrated yeah i mean the thing is it's a fast read like all these things that are wrong with it they are typical of the fantasy genre and i find that you know it's a fast read and you don't have doesn't take too much uh mental energy to, to read through it and people like reading about these sort of power fantasy books where the guy is wonderful and good and everything and he's opposed by unfair forces of like the rich guy picking on the poor guy or he always needs money we can all relate to that and you know but he's really clever and, and good at stuff so he overcomes it, you know it's it's a easy to digest story that could probably be made into an interesting movie that would be easy to digest but it's not it's not sort of an adult sophisticated story I feel like yeah, I mean, there there is certainly something to be said with that in that the you know the plot, the obstacles that he faces are are fairly mundane. It seems like for a for a fantasy book, for especially for something with you know that implies that there is this grand scale. I mean, yes, you know there is the the issue of his family being killed, but you know, like you said, a lot of the what he struggles with is is like money problems and being harassed by this guy at school, which and is cha- not you're chasing that girl who is right. not worth chasing. Well, which is none none of which is necessarily your typical like you know fantasy. Right. You know they seem a lot more like teenage, and of course our character is he's also you know precociously young, right? He's like it's like sixteen or something. But then so, mixed mixed in with that, they have that that story that you hear about like the the legendary backstory of these people and the kings, and that's like you know that's fantasy book type stuff where he talks all about uh, you know the, the the king who goes blind and the various deals they made and the origin of these people who kill. That is just 100% hardcore, epic fantasy. But then you come back, and it's like, oh, and it was just a story, so now I need to try to get some more money. Well, and, and that is one of the things I did enjoy about the book, at least, was those layering of stories where, you know, like I said, we already have this framing story and this guy relating a story, and then inside of that, we often have another layer of story that sort of comes in there. And I think, you know, clearly Rothfuss has an interest in sort of delving into the lore of this world that he's created, and a lot of times that's... You know that's fun or an interesting you know sort of side trip, even if it is a little bit tangential to the story itself. I'm curious. I mean, is there anything in particular that stood out to you as uh, you know moments that you did really enjoy? John, I'm gonna make you flip this on your head. Is like there anything oh in particular? Oh my tables. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I had a favorite scene that I I should have written it down. But I was thinking the of last when I was page reading. when it was over. <laughs> no, I didn't I didn't like that. I didn't like that bookend thing where the where the where the prologue and epilogue are like the same except for a couple words with little change in perspective. I didn't think he pulled that off. Um, so what was my favorite scene? I, I th- probably my favorite scene was when he's on the rooftop with uh Eloden yeah. or whatever his name is and he's trying to, you know, get him to come on board and he tells him to jump off the roof and he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of chuckle out of that just because that, that's that's an example of why I like this book because it it plays on the, on the conventions. In any other fantasy book, you know, he would have jumped off and been caught in the air by magic or proved his worth or not jumped off or something like that. Sometimes he jumps off, he, like, breaks his legs or whatever happened to him. I, I remember it vaguely. But that interactions with him tend to not be as stereotypical and, and it is because that's a situation in which he doesn't have all the answers uh, I, I don't I still I still think the character is still very Mary Sue-ish and I don't think this counts as a character flaw but at least he has genuine interactions in a situation where Meme or whatever saying the, the dramas where uh, two characters one character wants something and at the end of the scene he doesn't get it that's pretty much every scene between Quoth and Eladin if I'm mispronouncing both of those names yeah. so I enjoy all the interactions and the roof scene in particular. Uh, 
was one of my I think, favorite Yeah, parts. I would have said that that was among my favorites, too. I think another one of my... Um, another one that I really enjoyed from the first book is the uh, the uh, the first scene where he gets in uh, the first sort of scene where he has to prove himself to be admitted to the university. And I think part of what I liked about that was that you know yes he's very clever and that's that's the scene where it demonstrates again that he's clever. But I think one of the other things I kind of liked about that was that he also there's a whole point made out of the fact that he kind of cheats in that he sits he sort of sneaks into this place and and listens to everybody else's questions to see what they're going to ask before he does that. And I think, you know, to me that speaks to one of the things that I that I like about Quoth that is not necessarily just that he's so, you know, he's so smart and clever, but he cheats, right? You know, he he tries to figure out shortcuts. Um, and I think it's one of those flaws that I that I kind of like about him. That's his Kobayashi Maru uh, moment. Yeah, that's right. his that's his street urchin thing. Like that's that's the more interesting part of his character because he's insufferable when he's with his family. It's like, oh, we're wonderful gypsies and we're <laughs> artists and we all love art and we're happy and my parents love me and they're they're you know these they're twenty feet tall and towering above me and giving me advice and stuff. You know, when he goes through that experience living... Uh, you're, uh, yeah. You were pretty excited when they got murdered, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank God those guys are dead. The murder didn't hit me that much because it's like they're just... They're, there's a real problem with characterization. Every character except for the main character is really cookie-cutter. Like, think about his friends, like Sim and whoever his other friends in. They're just... There's nothing to them. They're, they're barely characters, if you had to say, what distinguishes one of his friends from the other? And same thing with the girls. They're just, you know... There's... There's not a lot there, and the same was true of his parents. So it didn't hit me that hard when he died because I didn't buy into the whole, like, I don't know. It doesn't seem real. But when when he's down and out in, as a, sort of a homeless kid and he goes through all those troubles and everything, that adds an aspect to his character that's more interesting. I think they should focus more on that uh, if they want to, like, you know, enhance his character flaws in a believable way. Things where he does things that are, you know, morally ambiguous to get ahead and, and seemingly doesn't regret them, uh, you know. And, and he does that. He's doing that in the second book now too. You know, continuing to do things that aren't particularly heroic or noble, or that his parents wouldn't approve of. But he doesn't. They don't seem to bother him. I don't know if he's a sociopath or they're just not. <laughs> they're just not very big on introspection. You know, I think, what would my dad think if he knew I was cheating to get into this? He he raised me so well and honorably, or just you know, it's all gypsies cheat. Sorry, gypsy listeners, for the start. <laughs> at, the, at the risk of uh, you know, making us sound like we we just. <laughs> fallen totally in the pit of not liking things. Um, well, Scott, did, was there anything that you particularly that stood out to you that you did like? I know we've talked a little oh. bit about what you didn't like. But. Well, um, I did like... I, I read the book when it first came out, so I don't remember any particular scenes, but I did like the... Um, how he goes about building his... I mean, this is kind of a, a term tossed around in science fiction and fantasy, world building, right? So I think that he does a good job of... I may not like the characters, but I think the world that he puts them in is very interesting. And he does... He built that world in such a way of not really telling us about it, but kind of having his characters interact in it and then, you know, telling stories about the world and setting it up. So you don't really see much of the world because you only see... What Kavoth is is interacting with, but you know there's a lot more stuff out there, and there are kings, and there are, are there's stuff happening that you don't really see. So I think that it makes the setting very interesting to me. I think that that is you know, and traditionally that's a big part of fantasy, right? Is world building. That's why many of us read these these fantasy books to sort of see what what other worlds that these writers can put together. Um, I you know I think that there's there's a lot I mean despite John's misgivings I think are are 
you know, some of them are very accurate. I think there are there are definitely shortcomings in the book, and I mean, I'm willing to cut the guy a little slack since it is his first book. But you know, you no. know, there is definitely room for improvement. Um, and you know, that's one of the things I've been looking forward to reading the second book for a while. I came across this book first, um, actually, the year it came out. I think because it was uh, the Onion AV Club's like book of the year, like the best book that they read in 2007. See, how could, how could that be possible? That's that's probably a lot of what's hitting me here is the overhyping. Like I read it after so many people had said so many things about it, so I was really expecting something special and. You know, for all the good things, like if I had come in unknown on it, I probably would have been up on this book and say, "Hey, I thought this book was going to be another garbage fantasy book," but it actually had some interesting things. Instead, I'm coming into it as this is the best fantasy book in the past ten years, and I read it and say, "No, it's not." <laughs> well, I was I was thinking about that as I, you know, preparing for this podcast. I, I sat in a quiet room and just pondered the book as I often do. And I, after I'd finished reading it, I thought to myself, I remember thinking very clearly, this is unlike any fantasy book I have ever read. You think it's unlike? Un- well, that's what I, after I read it, that's what I thought. But then, through the years, and thinking about what happened in the book, I thought to myself, this is pretty much what fantasy books are. So I, I was trying to think about, like, because, I mean, the story is very traditional, right? You know, it's a guy who overcomes lots of challenges and becomes this legend. But I think the interesting part of it, and I don't remember if this happens in the first book, but so it, definitely in the second book, he kind of, in the, the bookend uh, story, he relates how he kind of, he himself, during when he was a kid, created these legends about himself that you then hear later on. So, like, you know, he started spreading the rumors about, you know, the various powers that he had that he didn't really have, but he just kind of planted those stories and well yeah yeah there, there's a really good scene in the first book that i quite liked where the he gets punished for doing something at the university and he gets whipped um and he makes a point of taking this um you know drug or whatever that will uh prevent him from bleeding um so he doesn't you know so he doesn't ble- so essentially as a point of not showing weakness is the way that he sees it um and so that sort of earns him this quote the bloodless epithet um, that's you know then becomes a larger part of this legend like oh you know he doesn't, you hear that he doesn't he doesn't bleed and that's kind of one of the, the fun parts of this is that in this framing story he's he's an innkeeper having sort of resigned from this life of heroism and yet all the people who come into the inn know the legendary figure they don't know that that the the, the innkeeper is the legendary figure but they'll be telling stories about him and you'll see the as the story progresses as the story that we hear from quoth progresses you'll start to recognize like the stories that the that the people in the inn are telling about quoth this legendary figure you start to see the seeds of that in the story that that we're sort of getting the real story but they're totally blown out of proportion which is i think one of the things i liked about it like there's there's definitely a strong element of like what storytelling is and and making you know what exactly a legend is right and i think that was my my favorite part of the book and that's what i think made it so unique because you know the story is pretty much a fantasy story uh the magic system is different than a lot of other stuff but i mean the overall arc and the characters kind of there's nothing too extraordinary about them uh, or i should say nothing too stand out about them but i think that the whole like like Dan said, the whole you know telling a story about storytelling is is interesting. I was sort of of two minds on the framing thing because on the one hand, I, I almost think, especially in the first book, that if the series had started straight, where it was third person omniscient narrator, no framing story, start with the kid who's a gypsy, 
and just gone through the story in a linear fashion like that and then ended, I guess, in the same spot after finding out nothing new about these people and <laughs> saving the town from a dragon. You know, you'd be like, it would it would read more like like the first Harry Potter book where it, where it's like discovering the world and what you might do in it uh, and uh, a little bit of adventure and stuff like that, but nothing that big happens. Um, because I thought there was so little of the framing story. It was just, it was like almost like a distraction. Like they'd come back to it and they'd have that argument between Bast and, and the Chronicler. And like, I felt like that was just a waste of time. But on the other hand, since the framing story is there and we know he ends up as a sad innkeeper dude, I hope that in the later books they don't, and maybe in the second books, they don't pull punches. And it's not just that he retired from heroism, but that he ended up doing some really bad things. Because that will add a lot of interest to the character, I think. I don't want it to see like that he did heroic stuff, and even though it didn't turn out the way he wanted, he always had best intentions in mind. I want to see him, you know, either become mad with power, or make some really bad moves, or do something out of jealousy, or just basically mess things up. He's already, you know, implied that he's caused this big war that's sort of in the background or whatever. I want to see him do bad things, some sort of downfall, you know. I don't want to see him try to be the hero throughout the whole thing, just like he tries to be in the first book, and just like, oh, through bad coincidences and mean people doing mean things to me, uh, things didn't turn out that well. I, I want to see some serious, you know, uh, emotional uh, uh, wrenching problems happen to him. Um, and the framing story kind of promises that, so I have my fingers crossed, but we'll see. But I think that's what the, the framing story really kind of separates and elevates this book from the Harry, which I, I despise Harry Potter. So I, 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 never, I, I never even read them. I've only seen the movies, but uh, I, I haven't read them for a reason. I was, the, I was the only one on the Harry Potter podcast here, I guess. Well, there you go. And I, I, don't, I don't care for it. So, But I've only read the first one. Everyone says, oh, they get so much better. And if I don't like the first one, I'm not reading six more. I'm sorry. But anyway, uh, so I think that... That framing story really kind of, and it may be a trick, like a writer trick, but I don't think it is, but I think it really elevates the whole thing, and because you know how the story is going to end, it really makes the story, which is kind of a run-of-the-mill story, much more interesting, because you're like, well, how does he get from from this little kid who, you know, is great at everything, to this innkeeper who's kind of, you know, seemingly washed up, or is he hiding out, or what's going on with it? And you don't find out. He's so cautious about laying out details. I worry about uh, Dark Tower disease. The first Dark Tower had a little bit of that too, where it's this really interesting word and you want a world and you want to know more about it, but they tell you almost nothing. So it's, it's very a, removed. It's a, yeah, it's a big, big tease, and and it leaves you wanting more. But then then you've got to pay off eventually. You know, in the seven books, you have to tell something about this world, and that's the harder part. So in the first one, it is kind of a little bit easier to say, well, we're going to have this framing story, and we know something happens to him, and he ends up here. But we're not even going to tell you what. We're not even going to tell you whether he's, like I said, you don't know if he's hiding because people are, are trying to, did he do something bad? Did he do something good? Did he just give up? We don't know what happened to him. The only thing we know is that he lives through. Well, well, we get the impression from the end of the first, uh, the end of the framing story from the first book that he can't do magic anymore. That's, yeah, that's suggested like, is, by. Is it because he's depressed? Uh, I, I hope it's because he can never do magic and he was lying the whole time. <laughs> Unreliable narrator. What? Well, hey, I mean, and that's that might be, you know, that would that would be arguably very disappointing in some ways, but also very interesting <laughs> in other true. ways because we do get this whole thing through his perspective. Like, there's, and clearly, he's a good storyteller. So, you know, what if he is? 
he claims he is not, you know, embellishing it. But what if he was? You know, like that would be an interesting. And and in this in this world, I mean, in the university, magic is kind of commonplace. But once you leave, even like it looks, it feels like you walk like three steps from the university, and everyone has never heard of magic. So you can accuse you of consorting with demons and all sorts. That's why I like how they mix it with technology because, like, it's. there's magic, and then there's this other thing, which is their equivalent of technology, and and people haven't heard of it because they're you know the same way farmers haven't heard of transistor radios when it first appeared. But like uh, in the second book, not this is a spoiler, but someone's got a little refrigerator, basically that's made from these two little magic, uh, more or less strips of metal. But it's just a refrigerator, uh, and it's it's just as magical to him as as a real fridge would be, and that's like that's the, that's the one side of the technology that's. It's boring. Like people, are like oh, you got one of those magic refrigerated. Like it's not, you know, it's not that interesting. Versus naming the wind. John, were you were you were you disappointed when it turned out he was also, you know, like an excellent fridge repairman? Well, at, at a certain point, you just assume he's going to be good at everything. But he he is going to the university. But it, I mean, it seems so easy. You just write stuff on little pieces. Yeah. But that's totally different than the, the that's there and that has like you know you get three steps outside and no one's even heard of that. That's like sympathy lights. Wow, it's magic, you know. But the real magic is still as far as far along as I am in the second book, still very mysterious and very powerful and very scary. Even within the university, it's not like Harry Potter where they're like, "Now kids, raise your wands. We're going to learn." No, even within the university, it's kind of hardcore, and, and that's why everyone respects the the crazy professor guy because he's the one guy who's the professor of that real magic stuff. And the other guys are more like scientists, more like professors at an actual university. Who no one respects. Well, <laughs> just just like an actual yeah. university. Exactly. Or like, you know, he, someone's got a... Who, Kilvin's got that shop where people are building things. It's like woodshop class. There's dangerous chemicals. It's, <laughs> it's basically science without having to worry about it being science. It, you know. That's true. It's much more, you know, work-a-day magic. There's, there's very, it's, a, it's the magic of engineering. Yeah, and, and I, th- I that's my favorite part of the whole thing, is that, that split between technology magic and magic magic and especially since the stories they tell of like long ago and the people who are d- demons and the deals they make and the, and the magic magic like even within this world where this kind of magic technology is creeping up they still have these amazing tales of when there was real magic let me tell you kids and it wasn't this stuff where we write little ruins on pieces of metal and they get hot no let me tell you it was real magic uh, and the the few hints of that they get with him calling the wind and the le- that legend that whole thing I think ties the first book together because Lord knows the plot doesn't tie it together. <laughs> the fact that it's the fact that it's called the name of the wind and that real magic is is sort of going to be at the heart of his journey to power and that he you know hears about it in the beginning and does it at the end uh, th- that ties it together and makes it sort of a book for me. Well, and and there are a lot of things that are hinted at, and you know I kind of uh, I, I don't know. I find myself a little surprised. I know Scott, you mentioned this before um, that it's you know sort of envisioned as it appears as a three book series, but it seems like, and again, I'm only halfway through the second book. It seems like there's a lot more material in here that's than than's going to fit in three books, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I finished the the second book, and I don't. I if the third book is going to be maybe 4,800 pages long, maybe I don't know because there's a lot of <laughs> it's, stuff. That's a weird pacing, right? Yeah, that's like in the first book. I said I kept reading and reading, going, "Dude, you're not going to finish." Let me tell you, like he's, he's you're not going to finish. He's at the university. What's going to happen? He's, is he going to discover anything about these people? His whole mission in the first one is I got to find out about these people who killed my parents. You don't have enough pages left, dude. You're not going to find anything out. So I guess you should chase after a dragon for a while a drone addicted <laughs> dragon and then we'll end the book the end call the wind the end that's true but I, I have I have trouble following like the chronology so I read a blog post about this where someone said that 
in the the innkeep like in his innkeeper in the the bookend thing, they think he's like thirty years old, and I imagined him much older than that. I don't know. Yeah, I thought he was like sixty. Yeah, I think he's. I think. I mean, they, they're kind of vague about it. Um, you know, the, the the people who come into the inn are kind of vague about it. Though one of them does, you know, allude at some point to him being uh, can't be that old. You know, basically. I mean, of course, the story we're getting from him is he's like sixteen, and so you know, by that point, I guess you know, thirty might be really old in this fantasy world where where people seem to die pretty young or whatever. Okay. You know, they said he walked like an old man but looked like a young man. Like, he moves like... One of the comments from one of the people in the first or the second book was that you move like an old man, but you look like a young man. And, and again, you don't know. If life expectancy was 40, maybe he is getting on in years. I, I don't think the time gap is that important, but it, it's kind of like... This bothered me about Star Wars a little bit, too, in that within a single generation, people are like, Jedi, who's that? And, you know, just previously, ten years ago, they were swarming all over every planet, solving everybody's problems. Like, I ain't never heard any Jedi. I don't believe in the Force. Who's ever heard? You know, you'd believe in the Force if there were Jedi all over the place just ten years ago. You know, people don't forget that soon. So if this guy did all these amazing exploits and caused all these big problems in, like, the past five or ten years... Well, yeah. I mean, you picture... If you're picturing him as a legend in terms of, like, you know, shrouded in the mist of time or whatever, there's definitely, it seems like there needs to be time for that to sink in. Unless he's just a legend in this one little town, plus the university <laughs> town. He's <laughs> a legend in his own mind. Yeah. That's, that's tough stuff to work out, especially since this guy seems to just, pages come out of him, but he doesn't make progress. Maybe he's just not planned it that well, and he's going to... I don't know if he has the timelines all worked out, but I would think after working on the first book for seven years or something, he should take the time to do a little timeline chart and figure out, okay, he's this old at this point, i got to do all these events happen, happen between here and now, and does it make sense for the townspeople? Like, not to recognize... I know they didn't have photography and stuff, but he's a guy with red hair, and I don't know. It seems like hiding... By Wait a second. <laughs> Red-haired innkeeper. It's like Clark Kent. He puts on the glasses and it's like, you know, <laughs> Superman, where did he go? That's just this guy here with glasses. Well, and there's actually, there, there's a there's a funny scene in the second book where he tries to convince one of the one of the innkeepers. Yes, yeah, I just got through that scene. Yeah, and I felt like it was not plausible that he couldn't convince him of that. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I agree with, I think that there's something, and, you know, maybe that's still to be borne out by, by the rest of the story, but... I think there is something like you know if somebody walks up to you and tells them tells you that they're like Merlin or whatever like you know even if they got a long white beard and they seem to look like you know a wizard you're probably going to be a little bit skeptical. I, I met Merlin just the other day and let me tell you you meet a lot of interesting people in Philadelphia. You do I'll tell you. you do there's magic everywhere. But these people believe in magic though it's not it's not the same as Merlin it would be like someone who looks just like Robert Downey Jr. but looked a little bit scruffier came up to you and said no seriously I'm Robert Downey Jr. And you'd be like, get out of here. And then you'd look at him closer and you'd be like, yeah, I guess you are. Well, uh, and then I think there is some some question then of the def- def- like the definition of the world of the framing story, right? Because there is there is the, there's that encounter at the end of the book where there's this guy who's basically like a demon possesses some guy and they tr- and you know comes into the inn um, and they're all trying to stop him, but none of them quite believe that it is in fact a demon until after they've they've you know tried to kill it in several ways and it have failed i mean i think it's there is a suggestion that 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 is uncommon um but you're right that there's there's we don't necessarily have a clear picture of how the world in that in that future or in present i guess from the framing story um like how commonplace all these things are 
Then they are kind of in a backwater town where even though they, they talk about these legends and stuff, like they're not sophisticated people. The chronicler is more of a sophisticated person and his, you know, and his fairy friend. Uh, the two of them are more worldly and know about these things, but the townsfolk just seem to not know about anything. Another thing I liked about the, uh, the technology angle is that the demons, you kill them with iron. This is some sort of allegory about technology and, and superstition, or maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Well, that's, that's, a, that's, a classic, that's a classic sort of trope that goes back, I think, even to fairy tales. Um, cold iron is usually considered... Uh, I think Shakespeare alludes to that. Like, there's, a, there's a scene in like, Midsummer Night's Dream or something, I think. It's a nice piece of lore, though. They had good scenes with that, where they're like strapping them to the big iron wheel and putting them in the pit and everything. All that stuff would be good on film, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, would you make a movie out of this? It seems like it would be. It seems like it wouldn't work, right? It, it, it wouldn't work, but some scenes in it work. Like the, the whole uh, the backstory scene would be kind of like the backstory scene in, uh, in Fellowship of the Ring, where they're telling the story about the the original battle where the, the ring was cut off Sauron's finger and everything. That that little backstory segment. The story they tell about all those the legends and stuff would fit in that style, and and the scene with the demon being strapped to an iron wheel and speaking in tongues and trying to convince you to let him free that's 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 triple A cinema there. But then everything else around that, you're like, how do I make a movie out of this? You know, it's we, not your traditional. It's definitely not your traditional structured like your traditional plot. Yeah, the movie would end and people are like, what? Wait, what happened? And the, and the magic isn't that showy, so, I mean, it's not like he's... Yeah, people know. don't want it. Like, that works well, and that's something that works well in a book. All the explanations of the magic and everything. If you're kind of a geek or a science geek or whatever, you, it's like a different world system. You, I, I like reading about that. Uh, it's a little bit tiresome reading about it a second time in the second book, but that's a different podcast. We can discuss that later. How yeah, do you... But you I mean, I, it wouldn't be so interesting to see him, you know, crafting a sympathy lamp and explaining how it works. I would watch that. That sounds riveting. <laughs> I, I would watch it too. It does sound interesting, but for most people, not. That's my that's my favorite parts of the book when he's in the lab and explaining the principles and, and demonstrating them. I love that stuff. Um, not to, to veer too much a uh, far afield, but I was curious. Um, John, you said something earlier about like you know this wasn't this wasn't to you the best fantasy book of the past decade. I'm curious if there's something in particular that stands out to you that was that you felt like picked up the slack in places where this was lacking. Yeah, I, I rarely read fantasy books now, so I was just surmising that there had to be better books. Mostly, <laughs> mostly what, what? Let me think of it because, yeah, I, that's why I can't be in the book episodes because I don't read that much, and what I do read is like stuck in this Stephen King year's best science fiction ghetto. Have you read? Have you read George R. R. Martin, The Song of Ice and Fire? No, I haven't. Haven't read any of his books. Uh, That'll probably come up in a future podcast since the TV show is coming out next month. Uh, I, I can give an example of a really, you know, like fantasy books that are better than this that have been in my lifetime. Obviously, I'm not going to throw Lord of the Rings out there because that's ridiculous. But obviously, you know, that's that's my favorite fantasy book of all time. But that's a whole, whole other category. But uh, since, since I'm a big, such a big Stephen King, King uh, fan, his one fantasy book, I thought, Eyes of the Dragon. was a great example of by, by the numbers, straightforward fantasy that had lots of interesting things to recommend it like it wasn't amazing and fantastic and transcendent but it was it was a little bit paint by the numbers but i really liked it i thought it was and it was aimed you know it was it was not typical stephen king that you could read it to a kid or whatever i i always look to that as my sort of benchmark for uh top quality not not amazing but not bad fantasy and i judge all the fantasy books by you know is it better or worse than eyes of the dragon uh, in, in every regard, and this is worse than Eyes of the Dragon, almost every regard, but better in those highlight uh, aspects of like it had a better world, more interesting, 
uh, ideas about the epic story, and you know, it's much bigger. It hints at a much bigger story that has yet to be told. Okay, how about you, Scott? Well, I will admit that when I was in high school, I kind of burnt out on fantasy books. So I read a whole bunch of pretty crappy fantasy books, like a lot of them. And then I stopped reading fantasy because I was sick of it because it's always the same thing, you know. There's some extraordinary person and they need to find something and, you know, slay an evil. Um, So this book actually has – these two books I think are the best fantasy books I've read in the last few years. Uh, Of course, I haven't read much fantasy, so – I am not a good judge of the best science fiction, uh, best fantasy of the last few years. Fair enough. How about, how about yourself, Dan? Are you a big fantasy person? I, I, I kind of like you. I like. I read a lot of it. I mean, I think the thing that killed a lot of my fantasy interest was uh, Robert Jordan. Personally, uh, I felt him personally responsible for killing much of my fantasy interest. Which books did I? I think I read the first six, maybe seven books in that series, and that, I read up to the point like where I think I was in high school, and I read up to the point where like he had written at that time. And was like, well, yeah, that was pretty good. Like, you know, I'll, I'll read the next book when it comes out. And then the next book came out like years later. And I was like, I don't remember a thing that happened in there. And I'd become sort of disenchanted with it in the meanwhile. And I was like, I'm never going to reread it to, to figure out what happened. And then I would read some, you know, hear criticism of it from other people. Like, you know, that's another good example um, of the female characters being woefully sort of uh, two-dimensional and they're just for the, the, the men's interest in them. Uh, and I think, you know, that sort of rung home at that point after I was at more of a distance and, and that sort of held me off it for a while. I, I've come across a couple fantasy books in the past few years that I really liked. One of them was this one, at least before I started talking to John about it. Um, <laughs> John, John has ruined it for everyone. It's true. Um, but, uh, the other ones being, I have enjoyed George R. R. Martin's song of ice and fire till this up until the point where he is. And there's a, I guess the next book is due out in the summer. Um, and I've read the, actually read the the first three books in that series twice because I read them again when the fourth book came out. Um, and they're very good. I hope he doesn't fall into the Robert Jordan trap of sort of spinning this story out forever and that he has a good ending point because there, there's some really good stuff in there. Um, it's a very brutal you know series of books. It's got a lot of stuff that focuses on things more like political intrigue. There's not a lot of magic or otherworldliness. And so it makes it that much more interesting when that comes up. That's true. I had forgotten about George R. R. Martin. I will, I will second that. Um, and then the other book, which I came across roughly in the same time I came across Name of the Wind, is a book called The Lies of Locke Lamora, um, which has some things that are very similar uh, to The Name of the Wind, uh, especially in that you're the sort of the main character is this very clever fellow. Um, he's a thief, though, and this, is, this book is, is it's very different in some ways. It's a lot darker. Um, the end of that book is very dark. Like if John, when John started talking about, like, I wanted to see like the actual meaningful loss and stuff like that. I started thinking about that book because there really is a lot in that book that you feel sort of like, wow, that did not go well for that guy. <laughs> uh, and that, that had a sequel called, uh, Red Seas Under Red Skies. And I think there is another book due this year or, or sometime soon. And so that would be the other series that I read, started reading a few years ago and thinking, wow, this is, this is really good. I really like this. You know, you know what I would also throw out there. I was thinking of looking up here, it, and I mentioned the Dark Tower before. I don't know if you'd call it fantasy or sci-fi. It's kind of in the middle. But I thought my favorite book in the Dark Tower series reads like a fantasy book. Wizard and Glass is my favorite one, and that reads like a more or less a self-contained fantasy book. And I thought that was head and shoulders above. Uh, it's really that's a really coherent like uh, as opposed to a lot of the other books in that series, which are kind of like this weird pastiche mix yeah. match of genres. Wizard and Glass is really really coherent. Um, 
and like sort of focused on this story. And again, it's sort of a it's a flashback, right? Because it's Roland telling the story of yeah, very little framing story in that one, but yeah, mostly in the world the whole. And then it's been retold that they've sort of told that through a different lens in the they've been doing a graphic novel version of that, and it's sort of. It telling some of the same story or the the story of sort of young Roland, which is again interesting. I think that I agree that the world that world I really enjoy, um, and, and that you, Wizards in Glass is a pretty pretty good book. And you'd have to call that fantasy, right? Especially that old world stuff, as you kind of have well, kings and knights, and even though they have it's guns, fantasy and westerns, right? right. Like it's, well, it's kind it's like, of a mixed match of those two. But. Wolves of the Kala is more of the western self contained book. Well, that, and that's definitely a western. Yeah, well, western slash sci fi versus right. Western slash fantasy, and I guess that- I mean that's one of the things I love about the Dark Tower is that it does embrace all those things. But I guess again, something probably for another podcast. Yeah, but but I would but I would put that up there as like I was trying to think of fantasy books I'd read. I, I always try to read those years best fantasy, you know, just like I read the years best sci fi stuff. And for some reason, have a much easier time reading the years best sci fi short stories and the fantasy ones. I just I just peter out and don't make it through the book. Yeah, I don't know what the... I, I'm trying to think of other fantasy books I've read in the last few years. I think some of them... A lot of the other ones that I really like are things that have been around for a while that are... I mean, for example, I love I love Terry Pratchett, who writes in a fantasy world, but it's very... I mean, it's comedic, yeah, right? That, and it's a humorous... That's a whole different thing. That's like saying... Exactly. I like science fiction, so I like The Hitchhiker's Guide. It's, he has a genre to himself, and so does Terry Pratchett. I love him, too. Yeah, so I'm trying to think if there was anything else that was really... Like, that would jump out of me from the past 10 years and... Yeah, I, there are some that are the. There are very like I, every once in a while I'll see things come across, but they always sound like very traditional sort of fantasy books of the type that I, you know, didn't really like that much. So, I, I one of the things I liked about the name of the wind, I think, in in sort of coming back around to that is that, like Scott said, that it, it did seem to. While it has a lot of the tropes of a fantasy novel, it, it has enough different going for it that I uh, I found it kind of a departure. It's kind of a fresh take on it, right? Because it's not the same thing over and over again. Like when I was a kid, a kid, I I read a lot of David Eddings, so I was obsessed with David Eddings. So I read he had a a ten book series, and I read that whole thing, and then he came out with a new series, and I read that, and it was five books, and then he came out with another series, and it slowly dawned on me that he was telling the exact same story with slightly different characters over varying numbers of books. And so I stopped reading that. But this this was kind of a similar story, but it had a very different viewpoint. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I never read a lot of those ones that were big when I was a uh, when I was in high school, like the Terry Brooks and the Terry Goodkind and all that. I never never got into those. Oh, I read Terry Goodkind. And then he started getting very uh, sado you know sado masochistic. It was, it was weird. There, there were women who had pain sticks and they wore red leather outfits so that when blood splashed on them, it wouldn't show up. It got to be a bit much. <laughs> Working out some personal <laughs> issues, sure. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think everything else that I, you know, a lot of the other stuff that I enjoyed is much older stuff. Um, and, you know, I think there's always, there's a very porous, uh, you know, border with a lot of the uh, science fiction and fantasy things that, I, that I've liked from that era. But, yeah, there's, there's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting dilemma when you have these sort of well-established genre with all these well-trod uh, story types. So it's, it's always nice to see somebody break free a little bit. And, well, John, I hope the, I hope the second book treats you better, uh, than the, than the first one. And that it, at least maybe you can, you, you can see it through to the end. 
my prediction is you are not going to like it. <laughs> I don't call me crazy. I was thinking that it, you know it probably doesn't go anywhere either. But I don't know. At this point, I'll just because I read a lot of books that are not great. Like I read almost everything Stephen King does, and almost everything he does is not great. But there are certain writing styles and authors that just somehow the pages keep turning, and you just go through it. You know, I'm I'm in the middle of like this is the problem with e-readers. Maybe Scott has this problem too. I don't have a lot of e-readers compared to him, but I do have a lot of devices where I can read, and I'm in the middle of like nine books. It's just, it's too many. When I was doing paper books, it was always one at a time. But but now, it's like, what am I in the mood to read today? A lot of them are nonfiction, and those I feel like I can stop and start at any time. But even the fiction books, I'm just in the middle of so many of them. And I'm like, oh, maybe, do I remember where I am in this book? Yep, I'll, I'll read a few chapters of this. And this is why I never make any progress in any of my books. But when, when these books come out, these uh, Name of the Wind things, I think I pretty much read that straight through to the end. And I'll probably do the same thing with the sequel. Because even if nothing <laughs> happens... There are amusing scenes, and you want to see what happens, and it's not, you know... It's the same reason you watch bad sitcoms on TV. You're like, yeah, entertain me for a few minutes. But when, when it's over, I do feel a little dirty. <laughs> and, that that and is on, a jacket slur. Word. <laughs> yeah, put that on the blur. I don't think we're helping. Like, it was so hard to get people on this podcast to read a fantasy book, right? So it's just the three of us. One guy who's never on a book episode and the, and the, and the two guys who read everything. This podcast is not going to help us get people onto the, you know, the next fantasy book podcast. But for God's sake, people, read The Dark Tower so we can talk about it. It's only 8,000 pages. What are you waiting for? Would you... Here's the question for both you and Dan. Would you recommend this book? If someone... Your, one of your friends comes up to you and says, Hey, I want to read a fantasy book. What, what would you recommend me read of recent vintage? I, would you recommend this I book? have recommended this book to, to a few people, and, and most of them have, I think, enjoyed it. Um, although I have some friends who are very wary of that whole, like, George R. R. Martin, Robert Jordan disease of it's going to mm-hmm. be years and years before the, you know, the final book in this series comes out now. Um, but this is definitely one that I've recommended to several people and that they seem to mostly have enjoyed. Um, the Lies of Locke Lamore, as I mentioned before, is another one that I often recommend. And then probably, you know, George R. R. Martin, um, you know, in terms of recent stuff. But there's definitely older stuff I like as well. I'm a big fan of Dark Tower, um, as, as John, I know, is. Um, and I'm trying to think, if there's, again, if there's anything else that would really come up there. Um, I, like, I like Terry Pratchett, but, you know, he's kind of in a different class. I wouldn't recommend this book to someone who wanted to get into fantasy just because I don't think it's I don't think it's representative of the genre. I would try to look for a more prototypical book, you know, uh, even if it was one that I hadn't read but I just had heard was more typical because this is kind of weird and off the beaten path and flabby and just you know, if you're not into the fantasy genre, you want something that's going to like hook them and get them in. So, I, like for example, I would definitely recommend Eyes of the Dragon because it's like a, my first fantasy book. Really simple, wizards, a little bit of magic, but basically just like a, a, a simple story with a beginning, middle, and an end. That's self-contained. It's not a book It's not book one in a 20-book series or anything like that. Uh, that's the type of book I would recommend. If I knew more fantasy books, I would probably have a much better example than that. I, that said, I have mentioned this book to other people, most of the time saying that I, that I thought it had some interesting elements, but had many, many bad things. Uh, and so far, it hasn't made any of the people who I've mentioned it do it, go out and buy it and read it. Uh, I, I wonder why. <laughs> but I mean, you, you never know. Like I said, I said the same thing about a, a friend of mine. I told him about uh, the Dark Tower series and talk about not wanting to get committed to something that's just going to be this gigantic, loose conglomeration of stuff that you know spans thirty years. Uh, that's a big commitment. But 
you know, there is enough to recommend that that he actually did go through and read the whole thing. I feel kind of bad about that, but it's you never know. Like I want I want to give an accurate picture of a book. I want to see what people are getting into. So if someone was like, I'm, I might be interested in fantasy. I don't know. I don't know if I would recommend this book, but if I give it what I think is an accurate description of it, they can decide on their own if they if this is what they want to sign up for. Well, that's a that's a fair point. Um, it's true. You, you, I imagine you saying, "If you want to read a crappy book, go for it." <laughs> no, no. If, if say say you're say you're like us, if if you've read a lot of fantasy books and you feel kind of burned out on it, and you want to like read something to like maybe try to read fantasy again that will keep your interest, like that's that's what it did for me because I hadn't read fantasy in years and years, and every time I tried, I didn't get anywhere, and this book made me read through it. And I'll take the flip side of that and say that, you know, there are a lot of people, there's a, certainly a stigma attached to fantasy in some settings. Like, oh, you know, I have friends who are like, nah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to read something about magic and wizards and dragons. And I think there's enough in here that's not, sort of doesn't fall into those typical tropes. Um, and the writing is very accessible and fun. Like it is, like John says, it's a page turner, if nothing else. Um, and I think that's, that's something that often recommends itself to people who are like a little, maybe, might be a little like shy away from your traditional fantasy books because of the stigma attached to them. Yeah, we should all go out and recommend this to, to all our friends and relatives and see if anyone actually, see if anyone actually reads it and what they think. We'll find a control group. That's right. Let's be scientific about this. We'll have to pick someone off the street, see if they liked it, and then we can determine then from that whether or not it was a good book. Yes. I think all all things told, any book that I find entertaining and that I read and then makes me want to read the second book, even though it's four years in between, is a successful book, and I would recommend it. So I say, good job, Patrick Rufus, or whatever the heck your last name is. <laughs> bad, bad job on the pronunciation. First of all, why didn't you pick your last name better? Exactly. First problem. You, you you could pick your character names, and you picked names that we can't pronounce. Well, hey, we, I guess we should be blessed that there are no apostrophes in the names. That's true. And I actually thought he did a good job. If I never had to pronounce the names, I thought the names in a book about naming, I thought the names were very good. Yes, but unpronounced. It is weird. Every once in a while, there's a scene in the second book where he's telling a story or something, and he and one that like talking to some kid or something that he refers to as Jimmy. And I was like, every once in a while, they, he throws in a name that you're just like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was kind of funny. But, yeah, I, I would agree with Scott and overall think that this is you know def- a book that I read twice, actually, and enjoyed because I reread read it. twice? Um, oh, now the truth comes I, out. I read it a second time this year before because I wanted to reread it because I have a very bad memory for these books. Like, Scott, I read it a, several years ago, and so I reread it before the second book came out because I sort of wanted to – pick up the second book like a continuation of the first book and i can't um, imagine doing that it's pretty good the second time i enjoyed it i remembered i remembered some of it but not all of it well he posted uh, a recap uh in cartoon form on his blog so i read that and that was that's, very helpful that's a good idea previously on the name of yeah. the wind exactly there's very few books that i've reread that have gotten better or even stayed the same on second reading most of the time on second reading they get worse because in second reading i know what's going to happen so my brain has more leftover cycles to to uh, analyze the the you know the mechanics of the story and the writing and i end up le- not liking it as much there's only only one book that i've read multiple times that does not get worse on multiple readings and that's lord of the rings which i've i've read many many times and it doesn't get better on multiple readings but it doesn't get worse either it's tasty exactly i mean i'm going to have a podcast uh, there's going to be a podcast where john and I talk about Lord of the Rings and I tell him how much I really don't like Lord of the Rings that much. I, I, I can, un- I understand the reasons why people don't like it. I'm just saying for me, it doesn't, it, it doesn't get it doesn't get worse, and I feel like it stays the same. Whereas my, previous- I, I don't hate it, but I, I uh, the yeah, books it, themselves are not. The stories are okay. The books are it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's not for. Are. It's not for everybody. The writing and the, 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 <laughs> the story. I don't make the cut. I guess. 
Uh, no, it's just what, it's just what you're interested in. Yeah. Like if, you, for example, do you ever read Michael Palin's uh, nonfiction? No. Well, if you like, uh, he does travel writing, and I feel like right. if you like travel writing, you'll probably like Lord of the Rings because a lot of it reads like <laughs> nonfiction travel. <laughs> Here, see story, scenic Mordor. Seriously, this huge swaths of that book are just people like walking across the landscape and describing the landscape in, in ridiculous and, detail. And if recommending if you, restaurants, which I always thought was weird, but have you ate at the White Tower in Minas Tirith? Because it's great. I mean, the, the ribs. If if you haven't read if you haven't read Michael Palin's book, you should at least uh, I think they're on Netflix. You should at least watch some of the video because he he goes around the world and travels and and films it. And the books are a little bit thicker than the travel video but the, the shows themselves are actually very entertaining, great for long plane flights or something. So, so our, there's, our, there's our fantasy recommendation. Yeah, my, Michael Palin, Full Circle, or any of those other various series. All right. Well, the, the robotic buzzing of John Syracuse's voice tells me that, it's, that, that we've hit our, our hour-long mark here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up uh, and thank my guests, Scott McNulty. Uh, the pleasure was all mine. <laughs> and John Syracuse. Is my microphone better now? Yeah, yeah. Too late. Great. Just in time. Just in time. And thank you all for listening. I'm Dan Warren. We'll be we'll see you next time on the comment. We'll be watching. I remember reading Lord of the Rings on a one hundred and sixty by one hundred and sixty pixel screen. I'm full of corned beef.